Today on the University Podcast, what day of the week is it? <laughs> Philosophy Friday! Philosophy Friday, <laughs> and we have Keith Darrell in the flesh today. In so, studio. Yeah, in, in studio. Uh, Keith, how are you enjoying Moscow right now? Uh, well, it's a little colder than I would like. Uh, I was down in California, then even Boise the other day, and I think we we're looking like 85 degrees. And to come up here where it's like maybe high 40s, low 50s, it's yeah. a little different. Uh, but I, I do like being up here, uh, having been quarantined in Southern California, where I think people are a little more strict in their views as far as wearing masks. It's kind of nice to be in a little <laughs> land of liberty where 60% uh, of the faces aren't covered. And uh, so I, I do like being up here from that standpoint. So do you have a mask? I do have a mask. I have one in my car. I've not. I've worn it maybe into one place here in Moscow. I, oh, went, really? to, I went to go eat at Mikey's, get a euro at Mikey's, and uh, I, I, they had a mask sign on. So I was like, oh, I they require it. Okay. Uh, it, you know, the, everybody else in there didn't have one. Oh, uh, so but that was like in, strong suggestion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just saw it on the sign. Like, please wear a mask. I was like, all right, I'll run out to my car. But I've had the mask for like five weeks. So if it's, okay. it, you know what I mean. So I'm sure it's got other yeah. diseases. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I need to get a new one. So. Yeah. So I want to know is is the beard more hygienic or less hygienic? Do, do we know? Yeah, I don't know if there's any scientific is it filtering studies. filtering or yeah. is it a it, place it, for I bacteria? think if your stash is long, it's a filter, um, but but I, I keep mine at the lips, so I'm not okay. sure if it's filtering anything. Yeah, if your mustache covers your mouth, something's wrong with your face. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, today uh, we have a couple jargon words that you're going to take us yep. through. I'll kick it to you to let us know what are we going to learn today. Yeah, well, the first one, uh, because Mitch used this several times throughout his uh, these chapters, is the term defeater. And the basic idea of a defeater is if you have belief A, um, but also maintain belief B, um, but B and A contradict one another, uh, depending on which way you want to affirm it, it becomes the defeater of belief A. So if you fully affirm belief B, and it's contradictory to belief A, um, then it becomes the feeder of that view. So in kind of simple terms, if you believe um, that the only things that we can know are material in nature, but then over here you're maintaining a belief in something that is immaterial in nature, it becomes the feeder of your materialism. And so I believe that it, the, the reason we want that word, just because as you're listening to discussions, I think it's helpful to kind of have a term like that in your head and you're listening to what would be a defeater of this position. And you're kind of naturally doing that anyway, yeah. but I think oftentimes it's having a label for it. So even you know, in theological jargon, even if you're like, I'm trying to be more holy, sanctification. You know what I mean? It's helpful to have a term sanctification and understanding that. So defeater, I think is helpful in that. And then the other one that he uses in here several times is your inference. And so um, it's basically walking through the logical conclusion uh, from your premises are the inferences being made from one premise to the next to the conclusion. And that's the place where I, I think oftentimes, as he lays out here, it becomes difficult. Um, I wish I could remember the, his exact illustration, but I, th I think it was on the Copernican Revolution of okay. uh, what would it look like if the world uh, yeah. if the world was not rotating or if the, the it would look the same. It would look the same. Yeah. And, and so, so what what are the inferences of our beliefs? And if you know the nature of Wittgenstein asking that question kind of showed, yeah, what would be you know it seems like a reasonable question at first. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. it looks that way. Well, what would it look like any other way? Uh, you know, so. yeah. So is so when I I think of inference, I think of math mm -hmm. and. You're just kind of doing, showing your work, and say you're doing long division. Uh, it is 
Is that accurate to what you're describing when you're saying, all right, if this, then this, then this? Yeah, it, okay. I, I, that'd be absolutely right. Like, it's kind of funny. I, I, I really think of it, I, I guess I, I don't think I'm math properly because oftentimes when I'm on campus, like the math student's also the logic student. And, uh, you know, I just kind of did math growing up. I guess in geometry, I, I guess maybe if I think of it more in terms of geometry, yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's following through. If this is true, then this is true. And you're just walking your way through the conclusions of those Mm -hmm. uh, premises and, and those ideas. And okay. so, but yeah, it's for whatever reason, it's hard for me to think like 10 plus five draw, but yeah, you're drawing the inference that yeah. if you have 10 of these and five of these, the inference is going to be, you're going to get 15. So and it seems like a lot of the arguments are over whether our inferences are accurate or not. Right. Cause we can both look at the same math problem, but then we end up with a different answer. Mm -hmm. And so then you would go back and check your work. It seems like that's, you know, if you're in a logic class, that's what, you, what you're trying to do. Go from premise to premise and then see where someone is cheating or where someone has smuggled in some assumption. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's where you have to be really discerning because not everyone, I mean, most of us don't think perfectly logically jumping from, uh, you know, showing our work when we're having an argument with someone, obviously we're inferring and, and making logical leaps. I think that's typically when I'm interacting with, you know, an atheist or an agnostic on campus, uh, we might even sometimes get to the same conclusion, two plus two equals four, but how we got there, why we got there, why we think that's true, where we have completely different assumptions that yeah. go into that. And I, I notice it oftentimes, especially, it's kind of interesting, like if you ever talk to somebody like on the far left and the far right, and they kind of agree, you know what I mean? Like, oh, the government's doing this wrong, but all the reasons for why that, yeah. you know, so the conclusion is still looks the same, but all your, all the work to get there and the assumptions around it. And so, right. yeah, working through all those sorts of things is radically different. Yeah, it's kind of funny right now because there's, like the government is a total, um, kind of pinata for us to just hit and like everyone's upset at the government like you said but for different reasons mm -hmm. both on the right and the left and it's funny seeing people who would be like totally like they want the government to go hard socialism communism everything and because they're not doing that they want them out of office <laughs> you know they want their democrat out of office and mm -hmm. we're like yeah, we want that <laughs> office, but, but for a completely yeah, different yeah. reason. We want more freedom, lower taxes, more private property, yeah, yeah. all that. So, um, and then uh, on the defeater thing, so is that kind of a, like a mic drop moment, would you say? Or if, uh, if, if you get a proper defeater, it's the mic drop moment. And the, kind of the classic in Christian debate is if you've ever listened to the Bonson-Stein debate when, um, and it was kind of a little bit my illustration was the material idea where yeah. um, I can't remember exactly what Stein articulated, but basically, um, you know. Something I that's can, universal. Yeah, I can't believe anything. Immaterial. Yeah, so Bonson set it up where he went through basically like the laws of logic are universal, material blah, blah blah he laid that out and then stein was cross-examining him and he's like can you think of anything else in the world that's universal yes the laws of logic because he, he described defined god as universal immaterial yeah. and then he asked him can you name anything else in reality that is like that and he goes yes the laws of logic and everyone's like ah you yeah. know what I mean? he's like yeah. and like the glasses come down <laughs> and like on the beat drops and so that's kind of like a classic defeater and aha but yeah because it really was like if you're a if you're arguing from a materialist position as stein was and to appeal to the laws of logic is, mm -hmm. is an inherent defeater to, yeah. to, to his naturalism. And so if you've never listened to that debate, it's definitely 100% worth listening to because Bonson was a master rhetorician and even debater. Um, within that, I, I'm not necessarily persuaded Bonson actually showed his – he won, but I'm not sure he – 
uh, actually made an argument. He asserted Christianity's necessary preconditions for knowledge, but I didn't leave there thinking, yes, it's only Christianity that counts for the necessary preconditions for knowledge. But nonetheless, he definitely outclassed Stein and roughed mm-hmm. him up, and, and uh, I'm not sure if Stein was a saint. I, I haven't heard Stein's name since. So not, I, think, I think he kind of He's retired. like Ja Rule after 50 Cent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, he got hit by Mike Tyson, and it was over. He's like, all right, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not entering a debate game again. So I haven't heard Stein's name since. Yeah, so. although I have seen, I saw recently uh, – uh, Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. <laughs> Did you see this little advertisement where oh. they're both like in the gym? This is like on, I don't know if ESPN has a boxing Twitter oh. feed or something like that. But, and then they, it just shows clips of them like working out in the gym. And Tyson looks Ty- just like a beast. And then it, it ends with both of them saying, I'm back. And you're just like wondering, like, okay, are we gonna get you know to I don't know how they're fifty something yeah, years old. Yeah, Tyson's fifty six, I think. Yeah, so, so I, I don't know if we if that's right to see them try to go back in the <laughs> ring or if they just need money. And so this is a way. To, wow. Yeah, because I saw the I saw the clips of the Tyson training because yeah. every now and then come come through like your Instagram feed is like, would you get punched by Mike Tyson for ten yeah. million bucks? And my answer is no. You know what I mean? Because because clearly I'm gonna need ten million dollars of surgery to to regroup. Just watching like the speed and everything else is and he's either fifty three or fifty six and. Uh, um, that yeah, that, that he's still going, but I, I feel like Holyfield is like might you know is, yeah. is like definitely have slowed. Holyfield looks like he would get messed up uh-huh. by by Tyson, but you never know. <laughs> some, some people are more defensive or offensive. Or maybe he was only going like fifty percent. Yeah, Tyson was going one hundred. But yeah, you don't want to get hit by Mike, and yeah. so so Stein got hit by Bonson, which was like getting hit by Mike. So yeah, that was that was the KO for sure. Well, I think we're gonna hopefully get into maybe even some of the the Bonson stuff. I have some questions about circularity that we'll get to, but um, why don't I start by just overviewing what we're going to cover today. So we hit, um, we so we completed kind of like part one of this book, and then he has this intermission section called The Art of Self-Defense, and this is going to uh, just be three chapters long, and we're going to actually cover uh, br- briefly chapters eight, nine, and ten, and then he's going to spend pretty much the rest of the book dealing with two practical objections uh, to, I guess, Christian theism. So, uh, looking at chapter eight, it's called "Let's Be Realistic," and I want to read this quote uh, from page uh, seventy-four. He says, "Plantinga concedes that he sees no way to conclusively prove that God exists." This, however, shouldn't bother Christians. Uh, Keith, when you read that sentence, what did you think? Do you, do you agree with that? Because um, it kind of made me ask myself, can we prove anything irrefutably? And I think that's kind of what we're getting at in some of the differences between a Vantillian certainty and maybe planting as almost agnosticism about proof. Or I, don't, I don't know if that would be the right word, but... This kind of caught me off guard a little bit. I wasn't sure what to make of it. Yeah, it, it's so funny reading this for me because uh, I, I immediately put it in the context. I remember probably 15, 20 years ago, now I was in a discussion with a guy who was like hardcore into presuppositions and he'd just be so mad that like, oh, that gives you his probability, you know what I mean? And it would just be like this absolutely infuriating thing. And even at the time, I was a little uncomfortable with any sort of ambiguity in my thought and blah, blah, blah. And I, I felt like I had to have buckled down. And now I'm a little more comfortable with it because there is a... Um, because yeah, like there is this, even as he's laid out in this book, there are certain things like, you know, 
I, I, I'm comfortable with the idea that I can't technically prove to anyone that my mom loves me. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm persuaded she does. You know what I mean? I can point to the things that indicate that, but if you don't... But your cognitive faculty is not working <laughs> yeah, correctly yeah, yeah, and sometimes. the environment's messed yeah, up. Yeah, it, I, I, I could be wrong on those things, but could I ever prove that to someone's satisfaction? I don't think so. And, and I've just become more comfortable with that. So it's funny, I was reading that and I immediately think of... Um, and I know we've talked about it, I just don't remember if it was on the podcast, is Van Til has a quote, and I meant to bring it with me, but he basically argues that the proof for Christianity is irrefutable, and um, but he goes on to say it may not be stated satisfactory and may never be stated satisfactory, but nonetheless, it's, in, it's, uh, it's 100% certain. And you're just like, well, if it's never been stated satisfactorily, how do you know it's 100% certain? You know, so it's just kind of, I feel like Van Til and Van Tilians downstream from him are just kind of committed to this certainty and because they're often dealing with somebody who might have some level of uncertainty and kind of like the classic platonic like relativism like is relativism true if you say yes um then you're at an absolute and if you say no then it's a meaningless statement so i think a, a lot of people immediately go to that and that ties into the idea of inference so from a formal claim i think we can all agree certainties there you know what i mean because just the classic kind of the feeder of relativism is is relativism true mm -hmm. yes all right now you're no longer relativist is relativism true no okay then the truth is true so that's kind of like a classic defeater of relativism but then the difficulty becomes any particular inference you have about the world you know and, and i think that's the thing where from a formal claim we can all step back and say truth is known but what is all the content of that truth you know what i mean that's where the inference is and the filling it up and so Point being is I'm a little more comfortable with the idea of ambiguity now and the way he's laying it out where there is kind of like a commonsensical way like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a building across the street right now and I, you know, but if someone questions me, I'm not sure if I could prove it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a green screen. With a <laughs> yeah, yeah, right yeah. Now. and even, uh, and even per perhaps, uh, you know, someone's rolled in uh, kind of like a Hollywood set yeah. and I just think I'm seeing a, a town, but what I'm really viewing is just the front of a building that's deceiving me. And, and so from all perceptual purposes, I mean, it's irrefutable to me that I'm looking at a building, but next thing I know, they roll it out, and I was like, oh, wow. I, and so, you know, their, their point is, you know, but as he lays out here constantly, and this is why I think it's such a good book, is, but what's reasonable? You know what I mean? Like, like, like in the context of being in Moscow, Idaho, it's not reasonable that that is a Hollywood screen. I'm, and my cognitive faculties are working properly. I just don't have enough context what's going on. Um, but so when we ask what's reasonable, um, as he often does here, you're just like, yeah, belief in God's... And I, I'm even comfortable with the idea of certainty. I'm certain my mom loves me. You know what I mean? I'm even certain that Yahweh is the truth. And, but whether or not I feel like I have an irrefutable proof to someone else for that is kind of a different category, I think. And so... Yeah, I think I... I still don't really know what I think about it because I'd want to make sure I'm defining my terms and we're not equivocating, like... I'm just using a different definition for certainty or proof or um, irrefutable. Uh, those are words that have a history um, in, in philosophy. And so um, I, I think like right now I'd be comfortable if someone asked me, you know, are you absolutely certain, no shadow of doubt that God exists? I'd have no problem saying yes. I, mm -hmm. think, I think I would be more concerned if someone said no and that's where i don't like some of the william william lane craig probability stuff um, i just don't find that as uh persuasive when they seem to argue that way or leave that door open and and it does 
get into, so Van Til in like one sentence is basically, uh, I guess this, I don't know if this would be the transcendental argument in one sentence, but the proof for God exists, the proof that God exists is that without him, you can't prove anything. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because right here he's planting us, Stokes is just saying, yeah, we can't conclusively prove God exists, or it sounds like prove anything irrefutably. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if proving something conclusively and proving something irrefutably, is he meaning that to be the same thing? Or are those two different? Is one a higher standard? Because mm -hmm. it, it maybe it's, all right, until I have some evidence that would refute and change my mind that, okay, uh, you know, I'm in the Truman Show or I'm in the, I'm plugged into the Matrix or I'm in Hollywood. So maybe that is a more reasonable, um, you know, deduction that, yeah, that isn't a building over there. That's a, that's a set. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I would say, I feel like I can conclusively prove some things, um, but I don't know if Stokes or Plantinga would say, no, you actually can't conclusively prove anything. There's always some defeater that could show up. Yeah, I feel like not having talked to either men, but in reading this book, and the I've only dabbled very little in Plantinga, is I feel like there would be that possibility that there's there's something outside of our current purview mm -hmm. that could change my current set of beliefs and the way I'm understanding reality. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, I could be wrong, but I would want to say I think they would be open to the idea that all their current set of beliefs could be overturned. Yeah. Let me just read this uh, Wittgenstein quote that we talked about earlier when you were talking about inference. This is dealing with uh, geocentricity versus heliocentricity. <clears throat> and Wittgenstein says, or it says, Wittgenstein once asked a friend, tell me, why do people always say it was natural for man to assume that the sun went round the earth rather than the earth was rotating? His friend replied, well, obviously because it just looks as though the sun is going round the earth. To which Wittgenstein responded, well, what would it have looked like if it had looked as though the earth was ro rotating? Uh, end quote. And then Stokes chimes in here, well, exactly the same. Given only our ordinary unaided observations from the earth, the universe looks identical in a heliocentric and geocentric universe. Yet these are two very different universes. And even today, no one has observed the earth moving around the sun. I just really liked that because there's things that we take for granted, mm -hmm. our cosmology. And, and I think this is also how flat earthers can even be a thing right now. Because <laughs> like, well, have you observed that? Have you seen the fossil record? Have you seen, you know, evidence that we are where we are, that the earth is round. And so it's kind of a funny philosophical question. So uh, do you have any thoughts on this um, kind of perspective of, of the universe? Yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, so, so going, we've mentioned John Frame a little bit uh, before in this, I, I believe in this podcast, and he kind of comes up with a thing called triperspectivalism. And so there's, there's basically three ways of knowing the world. There's a normative, situational, and... I'm blank on the third right now. I'm not good. Um, but, but basically there are three ways that you, you're in your, and he, I think in a good way is always trying to bring these three things together. I think the existential uh, yeah, was the other one. And, and he's, he's always trying to bring these three points together. And in, in one of these chapters and Thomas Nagel is a philosopher who actually wrote a pretty interesting book called mind and cosmos, which is, and it's a critique of the neo-Darwinian synthesis, I believe. Um, but I'm reading his book, the last word and he also wrote a book called A View from Nowhere, which I have not read, but basically everybody has a view, you know, you, you're viewing the world from a certain perspective. And, um, and so, I, and I think that, and I think that's where the, where someone who becomes more philosophical like Mitch is, and you start to become, start to step back and really think about these things, you're kind of like, 
am I looking at the world as a the heliocentric view or the geocentric view? Right. And how do I know I'm right? You know what I mean? And, and you can really, it's a real rabbit hole. You know what I mean? Once you start to go down there, you can, and that's where, you know, kind of faith and even John Frame lays out early on is, uh, you know, we read Genesis 1 and we trust there's a creator, there's a real world, and there's a real self. And then we just operate with those assumptions. Yeah. Um, a lot of that stuff can't be proven per se. So I think that perspectivalism, it's, it's, that fingerprints is in my thinking because I've read a lot of John Frame. And, uh, and I, but I think that's part of the difficulty oftentimes uh, and even kind of how postmodernism to an extent can arise is like they realize we're embedded in a narrative about the nature of reality. And if you're geocentric or heliocentric, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? You don't really know you're interpreting all the facts right. You're just kind of, you're a geocentric person, so everything you <laughs> interpret is geocentric. Um, the heliocentric person interpret everything that way. And, yeah. and, and so that, that's why you get the rise of those things. So I understand where they're coming from. Um, and, and, but yeah, you, you don't have a view from nowhere and ultimately you got to plant somewhere. So. Yeah. So that's kind of what I want to talk about now in chapter nine is like, where, what is our starting place? I think I, I still have questions about how Stokes would actually positively argue for God's existence because we talked about right now, he's just been responding to the claim that belief in God is irrational. Mm -hmm. And then he demolished evidentialism to show that, well, we don't necessarily need evidence to prove that, you know, something, belief in God could be rational. Talked about the sensus divinitatis, but that's not a positive foundation. That's still a defense response to someone else's claim. And so I'm, I'm still wondering if maybe he'll, he will later in the book set forth a positive, okay, this is, this is a doctrine of the knowledge of God. This is uh, the foundation, this is how we build on it. Because right now this is mainly responding to objections. And I think that's my one maybe criticism of Plantinga's view is that it isn't, it doesn't seem like a complete or holistic epistemology that you can build on, or at least the way that it's represented here seems more like, okay, there's a lot of tools here that I could use in an argument that I think are legitimate. But if I'm a Christian, I believe the Bible is God's word. How would I set forth a positive worldview to use um, kind of that, that language? And I want to look at page 88. The, section, the little kind of subtitle over this section is taking atheism for granted. I'll just read a little bit of this here. He says, Notice that when a Christian argues for God's existence, she cannot import her own belief in God into the argument, argument using even implicitly God exists as a premise. <clears throat> this doesn't mean that she doesn't herself believe in God while she's presenting her argument, nor does it mean that she must base her own belief on the argument she's currently employing. Rather, she should simply avoid arguing in a circle. The argument need have nothing to do with her own belief. Uh, so when I read that, uh, that, that's where kind of all my Bonson, Vantillion <laughs> alarms go off. And I say, no, I don't agree that we get to do that. I think that is unbelief. Mm -hmm. So how would you maybe um, defend that or maybe agree with, with my criticism that a Christian shouldn't do that? Yeah, because the next paragraph goes on to say, and neither can the atheist dot, dot, dot. Right. Kind of, all right. So I, I just want to ask, what can we take for granted? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, so, and that's where, you know, Van Til and Bonson, and their fingerprints, like even if I want to rub them off, their, their, their fingerprints are all over my brain. Yeah. So, I, so I can't totally rub them off. So, so I, um, and, and so without an actual dialogue of what you were kind of getting at, you'd love to see it in, in practice. Without the actual practice of what this looks like in a discussion, 
it's kind of hard to really offer up a thorough criticism, but I would, um, if, you know, obviously if your argument God exists because God exists, you're just kind of like, okay, well, it's, at the very least, you can, can you step back and say, well, that's not persuasive to anybody? Yeah. You know what I mean? That might be true. I, yeah, it might be true. But, but, persuasive? But, but, but now you have to reason to be persuasive with somebody. And so I, and that would even be one of the things I feel like Mitch being pretty sensitive and pretty thoughtful um, and, you know, he's, he's fairly, because he is thoughtful, I don't want to act like his words here are ambiguous, um, but you have, uh, but I think he's working from the standpoint of, like, communication with somebody, and I think, in part, being in our circles, he could, in, in part, be talking to guys who's just like, no, you just shut up, you assume it, and you just, you're just a steamroller, you know what I mean, and if anybody raises an objection, you just keep punching, yeah. um, sort of thing, but I, would, I just want to ask, well, what can we take for granted? If, if the atheist can't do, take his atheism... And then that's where the realm of neutrality as far as the, the reason. Well, there's this right. thing called reason and there's the world uh, that ends up stepping in. Um, and so I'd, I'd, I would ultimately want to take issue with regards because, yeah, like you're, you're, you're somehow, you know, because if you have a deductive proof, God exists has to be in the premises somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and if it's an inductive proof, obviously we're back at the place of uh, probability rather than some, some level of certainty. So I think, I think the idea of God being in the premise, uh, God exists as a premise, as he says here, um, uh, that we can't take for granted using God exists as a premise, I, I, it's somewhat inescapable in the debate. Yeah, um, so, so that, that's kind of what I feel like is the inescapability of circularity. And so I, I find it more persuasive, actually, to not say, hey, atheists, let's both uh, kind of pretend for a minute that neither of us are standing on our premise. I'll, I'll concede, okay, maybe God doesn't exist, and you'll say, okay, maybe he does, and let's reason together. Uh, I think some, some people do try to do that. I find what I like about Bonson's thing is like, hey, here's what I'm standing on. I'll show you my work. Mm -hmm. I, I'm starting, I believe that it is, it is a circle, but I don't think that violates the laws of logic. Here's, here's why I think this is actually reasonable to build. Mm -hmm. So it's so saying, here's my foundation. I take it on faith that God exists. And here's some of the reasons why. And then you take on faith that God doesn't exist. But then how does your logic work? Then how does these... That, to me, is what I found very attractive um, in presuppositionalism, and I would still, and I'd want to actually critique something like this and say, um, this this seems like putting the gun away. You know, mm -hmm. I don't believe in guns. Okay, I'll put the gun away rather than even using scripture to say, well, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims its handiwork, and and then they could just come back. Well, I don't believe the Bible, and then you put away your Bible. Uh, I think that would be the. Um, I think presuppositionalism rightly critiques that kind of methodology, but I don't. I don't want to say that's what Stokes is advocating here, but that's kind of what it sounds like to yeah, me. Yeah, because there's a little bit of that waffle. Uh, nor does it mean that she must base her own belief on the argument uh, she's currently employing. Um, that's not it. Uh, yeah, but, but kind of like it's not like she's getting rid of her belief. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a little bit of a both end. Oh, she's not getting rid of it, but she's not using it in the premises. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why I'd have to see it like. Acted out for me, you know? yeah. And and that's and that's as I mentioned earlier, the Bonson debate. A lot of people hop on the presuppositional train because they saw the Bonson debate, and you know, I'll, I'll keep repeating. I don't think he actually made an argument in a sense, but he definitely defeated Stein. You know what I mean? So and so a lot of people hear that and they're just like, "That's it." You know what I mean? It's a very clear defeater. And if you listen to William Lane Craig, 
He's had a couple of those. I actually, I listened to a debate of his, and you're like, okay, he's he, he's throwing some haymakers out there, and, and like logically, you're just like, wow, that's. Listen to his uh, Rosenberg debate. I mean, okay. he he decimates him. It's it's great, but um, but I think that's the appeal to the precept is is it's it was such a clear defeater for Bonson that people are like, yes, and this you read this, and I'm not totally clear on what Stokes is driving at with how do I hold this belief in God, and the average Christian does want to maintain it and hold it rather than. Set, set it on the shelf for the time being because I'm, yeah, I'm really left wondering, well, what, what do we take for granted? And if we just take for granted empiricism, I can never get to an eternal God yeah. from empirical premises alone. You know, I can never get a sense impression that God's eternal. Even, even if Jesus came in the flesh like, I'm God, I'm like, okay, he is God, I'm seeing him. That impression never tells me he's eternal. Something yeah. else has to tell me that. So, um, yeah, so I don't know what premises he wants to take for granted. Yeah. Have you been through John Frank John Frame has a lecture, and I, I listened to it a while ago, and I don't remember it very well, but he has just a lecture, and it's called, like, Proving the Gospel. Uh, and so uh, I'm just curious, with your reading on John Frame, would he, uh, where would he maybe depart or improve on Van Til on, a, on something like this, or, or are what we saying representative of what Frame would do? Yeah, yeah I would say where I think he improves, and this might be a little simplistic, in the sense of judging frame off of watching other people do presuppositional songs, okay. if that makes sense. Um, more so than I could clearly articulate Van, uh, Van Til said X, frame saying Y, and here's why it's an improvement. Um, but frame basically understands that he's sitting across the table from someone with real life world experiences and he has no silver bullet that if I just go into every conversation and just repeat the impossibility of the contrary yeah. and as you you know and I think it's fine to state without the proof of Christianity you can't prove anything. And obviously there's a certain level of like, you know, we want to use the same arguments in a way. You know what I mean? But since we're dealing and one of the things I love about Mitch's book, he knows that we're dealing with persons all the time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you take Jesus again, this isn't proof, but the woman at the well he's interacting with than than the Pharisees. And so I think point of all that frames improvement is he's just like sometimes you're sitting across the table from somebody where the evidential argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient. That's, and that's the argument you need to work rather than working through all the presuppositions and showing that's the case. And and I think a certain level of that pragmatic component of what frame is bringing to the table, being engaged in ministry and you know, I'm not sure if he's ever involved in pastoral ministry, um, rather than just like internet debates or street level debates, yeah. um, and what and uh, you know, looking for the haymaker, um, that aspect of kind of a pastoral element, like who's sitting across the table from me, and what is it they need to hear, and sometimes it's, that does sound like evidentialism, yeah. and that would be the place where I think um, frame is improvement, and even in his analysis of Van Til, it's been like 20 years since I've read it, but he. Made a comment that I don't have. We don't have a silver bullet, and yeah. and that actually freed me up because uh, I was like, and even as I'm inter- interacting with fools, I feel much more confident of like, okay, I can walk away. I don't have to cast. Yeah. Whereas you know, when I was younger, it's like I have to prove to everybody, and if I you know, and I can't let them go until I've proved it. Whereas Frame just kind of gave me the freedom, like, okay, I don't have a silver bullet, and if they don't bow, yeah. you know, maybe I can yell Romans one at them on their way out. But that's not necessary. <laughs> a so. reading from God's word. <laughs> reading from God's word. <laughs> Romans one. It's the truth of God and righteousness. So. Um, yeah. That would be the component where I think, uh, and, and he actually, and I only read it, but but uh, the first two chapters, but Frame came out with a book like maybe a year ago, maybe a little less, on uh, kind of like basically creation declares God's glory. And it's kind yeah. of like an, almost like an evidentialist-y sort of thing. And, but within that, it's so thoroughly biblical. Like, and that's the thing I actually like about presuppositional. It's kind of the nice thing, compliments I feel like I've received on campus was like, 
Um, they would just say, like, someone would say something like, everything you said was biblical, but you weren't just quoting Bible verses at them. And, right. and I think that's even one of the things, like, Paul on Mars Hill, which we looked at last week, yeah. um, he, everything he said was biblical, but it's not like he's like, Deuteronomy, because he's talking to a bunch of pagans. Right. So he's not just standing there saying Deuteronomy, although his whole from one nation made all nations, that's Deuteronomy. You know what yeah. I mean? And then he appeals to their own poets. And I think the, those are the places where even like Mitch, I think, comes in and helps round out presuppositionalists that are kind of like strands of that fundamentalism that thinks we just have to keep quoting Bible verses. And there's a magic formula if we quote Bible verses, right. opposed to everything we're saying is biblical, but we're interacting with a person across from us, so I don't need to sit there and just say Deuteronomy, Exodus, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But everything I'm saying is Deuteronomy, Exodus, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> I also think about the way Jesus or, or the apostles just interact with people. And, you, and like you said, there's not a one-size-fits-all response. And um, it seems like sometimes these discussions, uh, like from our perspective, if, our, if the goal is evangelism, not necessarily winning the argument, as we'd say, win the person, not the argument, when you read Christ, you realize it's totally legit to change the subject, to say, I'm not going to answer your question directly, I'm going to ask hmm. you a question, or I'm going to change the argument because going down, I could answer that, right? God, God knows everything, he could have answered that, but... He's going to say, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God, you know, what is God's. And and suddenly they're just like, oh, you know, uh -huh. that, that's a mic drop moment right mm -hmm. there. And I think we need to know sometimes when we need to change and say, okay, we're, we're chasing, we're just logic chasing. And if he, I couldn't persuade this person or if I could, it still wouldn't bring them to Christ. It mm -hmm. might bring them to um you know, okay, the laws of logic are immaterial, and, and I do do that. So you don't want to just be doing epistemology yeah. when you're interacting with people. Sometimes you need to just say, um, you know, have you ever thought? <laughs> yeah, have, have you have you ever like read the New Testament? Do you do you find the Jesus presented there as compelling? I just this week read Bavink. I'm going through his book, The Wonderful Works of God. It's like one of the best books I've read in a long time, and he just goes through and just maybe like three or four sentences, just the kind of classic proofs for God uh, or evidences, however you want to say, ontological, teleological, um, I forget what the other two are, there's kind of four major ones. And it was just so, to me as a, as a Christian, so persuasive, uh -huh. just seeing like, yeah, the, the universe makes sense. You know, it's, it's finely tuned. And <laughs> I, I, I actually think those evidentialist kind of arguments are very persuasive uh, to a lot of people. And so as a presuppositional guy, I don't want to just jettison those things. I think there's totally a time and place to say, you know, maybe they, a lot of people believe in God, like the people are interacting with, they would, they'd say, yeah, you know, I believe in God. They might even believe that Jesus was a real person, but they've never really given their life to him. And so I find some of these other arguments, yeah, that, that, that's logically satisfying. And if anything, the, I think the Christian proofs, the classic proofs for God's existence are the best account of things, our observation of things mm -hmm. being what they are, compared to, say, the evolutionary story. Like, when I think about evolution, I have no idea how they could come up with a male and a female. Mm -hmm. like, I, like, to me, I don't see any way that you could get to a male and a female, two different things that are complementary, fit together, propagate the species. Like, I don't see any way that that is possible mm -hmm. given an evolutionary story and so for me that is a, a defeater yeah um to, to anything in me that would say oh is evolution 
true or not. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even like with the for me the idea of evolution, like even even if I was to accept, obviously we accept strands of you know micro sort of stuff. But to me, it's like even just the nature of reasoning, uh, kind of like you know a little bit. Um, Plantinga's defeater of evolutionary or evolutionary defeating of naturalism yeah. and, and morality. Like, it, like yeah. in the next chapter, you kind of bring those two things up. But yeah, I, I, like to me, the, the idea of morality in an evolutionary theory, even if I accept strands of it, and and even the use of reason as well as its life, like it just, it just, I mean, a prior it makes no sense of the world yeah. to me. You know what I mean? And so, so it's hard for me to accept any strand of it because you're just like there's no way that the irrational has given us the rational and the amoral has given us the moral right, you know what I mean? yeah. like, like in my head I just can't get there yeah. and and the more I read atheists who are consistent with those premises like Alex Rosenberg I'm reading he's like there is no reason um, stories are absolutely meaningless yeah. they're, they're... put this book down <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like no, no statement makes sense and, and so um, I believe like an Alex Rosenberg's a consistent atheist and you read that book it's, it's utterly irrational so a little plug again for the Craig Rosenberg debate because Craig, <laughs> Craig puts him to the woodshed. So Yeah, well, let's conclude by looking at chapter 10. So this is kind of just almost like an introduction to the rest of the book. So chapter 10 is called Law and Order, the next step dealing with defeaters. And I'll just read a quote here. He says, Christians can ordinarily take God's existence for granted without having an argument for it. God has designed us to believe in him as automatically as I believe that I had eggs for breakfast this morning. That's that sensus divinitatis. A belief, in, a belief in God is the default position for creatures like us. This default belief, however, is very different from assuming that God exists in an argument with an unbeliever. So that's kind of what we've been discussing. Is that a legitimate distinction he's making? Is that a worthwhile distinction that he's making? And then he's going to spend the rest of this book considering what he calls the two most common and powerful attacks on belief in God. And these are, can you guess what they are? They are science has shown that God doesn't exist and evil and suffering show that God doesn't exist. And so that's what the rest of the book is going to be about. Uh, Keith, do you have any thoughts uh, on chapter 10 before he gets into trying to answer these two objections? Were you surprised that these were the two that he went to or, or not? No, I think it's, I think it's very much the case. Um, it, when I'm on campus, I think the, Aside from the postmodern relative, like the, the the heavy pluralism, I'd probably throw into the mix too. The world's so diverse. How can one individual be sure that they're that they know the truth? I would have, you know, I would have had a little trinity of objections here. Yeah. Um, but then the ones who do think a bit more that there is no God, it is definitely science has proven, naturalism has proven, and then definitely evil and and suffering, as we've talked about on this podcast. I mean, that's the underlined almost. 99% of what's going on in the world. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, um, and even Romans 1, express the truth of God and unrighteousness. So there's sin and evil and done to us and that we're doing. So that's not surprising. The only thing I'd probably add to the mix is, is some strand of pluralism mm -hmm. to get you to the, the like, how are you sure? Because, and I think some people are genuinely wrestling with it. Uh, the pluralistic aspect, like, yeah, there's, there's so there's so many multitudes in the world and so many potential interpretations. How do I know that mine's right? So yeah. that, that would be the three, but those two don't surprise me at all that they're there. Yeah. Looking forward to getting into the rest of this book. Um, real I real quick, before, got, yeah. can I interrupt? The, uh, he, he gave us the uh, Kant quote, which I think is uh, uh, wonderful, but he says, but Kant had his moments. Uh, here's one of his most memorable and lucid utterances. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and reverence. The more frequently and persistently one's meditation deals with them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. And so I, I, if, you, if you can kind of lock that away, you know, try to get a little more of 
Kant in your head, but it's poetic. It, yeah, yeah, it's poetic. And, and you think of Paula Mars, uh, Paula Mars Hill um, saying, you know, uh, as your own poets say, like as your own philosophers say, like, yeah. and 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 here's where, like, even just practically in evangelism, appeal to Kant, like. <laughs> is, is there not anything in the starry heavens above or the moral law within? You know what I mean? And there's yeah. a poetic, and there is just something that deeply resonates with you. Yeah, like I remember being a little boy looking up at the heavens, and just like, there's a God. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember laying in my backyard in the grass, looking at the stars, and then, you know, sin comes alive in junior high, and I stopped looking at the stars. You know yeah. what I mean? And girls came alive. It was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so, my, my because of sin, all that shifted. Yeah. Um, and then the moral, but within that, I always had the moral law within that I was wrestling with. So, I just even think something like this from Kant, when I read that, I was like, this is, yeah, this is profound. It's great. And it's very, tr it's true of my experience of the world. And I think, almost universally of everybody out there as well. Yeah, those two, it's funny, those two premises are the classic ones in systematic theology when it comes to revelation, natural revelation, and then to some degree, the the word of God, so Psalm 19 has the, you know, the heavens above, and then it has the, the actual word of God, and the word gives you in, in word what the moral law is saying. So we'd say uh, the Ten Commandments, and then uh, kind of exposition of it is is the moral law on our conscience that God encoded and gave to, to Israel and is still binding on, on all of us today. And those are the two places where it's like people are searching and they need to give an account for it. And as Christians, well, we have like God has given both of those to us in his natural revelation and his special revelation. Good. Well, uh, we're reading A Shot of Faith to the Head by Dr. Mitch Stokes. I would encourage you guys uh, to get this if you want to, uh, you know, listen through the uh, the previous episodes. I think we're, uh, this is episode five now. And so we've got quite a ways to go. So we're pretty much at like the halfway point or so in the book. So if you guys want to hop in, and if you have questions, feel free to send them to me or Keith. Keith, what are you going to be doing uh, with your time here in Moscow, besides oh. buying people Americanos? Yeah, Americanos. If you're in Moscow today, uh, <laughs> I'll buy you a, a $1 Americanos at Bootsers. Shout out to Bootsers. Um, <laughs> sponsored by Bootsers. Um, no sponsorships. Um, I will be basically meeting with people. I do. I may be hosting Cost Politic next week, okay. um, and then I will uh, hopefully knock out. A, I gotta. First of all, I, I want to make videos, but I need a haircut. <laughs> if I want to be embedded in YouTube, I want it. I want respect. Hey, John the Baptist did get a haircut. <laughs> so, so I hope to get a haircut and make a couple videos. Um, Interacting Alex Rosenberg's book and also Cosmic Skeptic, who I've mentioned on this program before. I just haven't executed on that. But uh, hopefully next week I'll be at Cross Politics Studios and knock those two things out. Okay. Um, but other than that, meet with people. If you're in town, you want to meet up, holler. So. Yeah, he's easy to find. All right, till next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.